Willkommen in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Berlin. I'm Marion Jones and this is City Breaks Berlin Episode 2, i.e. the first real proper episode in the series. And I thought best to start with two very iconic buildings. So picture the scene, you're in Berlin and you want to take a photo or two which will say Berlin to everyone you show it to. Or perhaps you're going to do that old-fashioned thing and buy a postcard. Either way, what image will you choose? I think most people come down on the side of either the Reichstag, the Parliament, or the Brandenburg Gate. They are favourites among Berliners, and they say Berlin to the rest of the world. So the plan for today's episode then is to devote a little bit of time to each of them, a bit of history, and an idea of what you'll see when you get there. Okay then, so let's start with the Reichstag, the Parliament. A building you might be surprised to hear dates from as late as 1894. That's when it was originally built, although what you're looking at today is not quite the version that went up then. The country we know as Germany was only formed in 1871, also the date for the end of the Franco-Prussian War, a point at which the Germans demanded an enormous sum in the way of war reparations from the French, which they used, at least in part, to build this parliament. And it served then as the parliament for the German Empire until 1918, and then for the Weimar Republic after that. And it is a place where some momentous historical incidents have taken place, not least in November 1918, when the Kaiser abdicated, and one Philipp Scheidemann proclaimed the new German Republic from the balcony. This is what he said. Workers and soldiers, the four years of the war have been terrible. The people have had to make fearful sacrifices of possessions and blood. This disastrous war is at an end. The murdering is over. The consequences of the war, the poverty and the misery, will still burden us for many years. Be united, faithful and dutiful. The old and rotten, the monarchy, has collapsed. The new may live. Long live the German Republic. The idealism of this new start didn't last very long. A mere ten years later, in 1928, the National Socialists won 12 seats in the Parliament. They were still the smallest party at that point, but by 1933 they'd taken power and Hitler had assumed the chancellorship. At this stage they'd received only 33% of the vote, but then something happened which changed everything, and it's something with a lot of mystery attached to it. There was a fire, the Parliament was badly damaged, and Hitler pronounced, This is a God-given signal. If this fire, as I believe, is the work of the communists, then we must crush out this murderous pest with an iron fist. An arrest was made. A Dutch builder called Marinus van der Lubbe was charged, tried and executed. In fact, decades later he was exonerated. And the National Socialists immediately introduced emergency powers, a decree abolishing freedom of speech, limiting gatherings, limiting the press, legalising phone tapping, arresting thousands of people, including a good number of the communist deputies due to take their seats in the parliament. All of this then left the Nazis pretty free to do as they wished. Historians have been debating ever since what really happened. Did the Nazis instigate the whole thing as a power grab? And while you, like me, might be sitting there thinking, sounds pretty likely, they haven't been able to agree for sure that that was the case. I'll let the historian Peter Black summarise. I would say, he wrote, that van der Lubbe could not have started that fire alone. 
based on the evidence that is now available. It seems likely that the Nazis were involved, but you don't have anyone who can say, yes, I saw the Nazis. And I read an interesting account by the journalist Martha Dodd, who was the daughter of the American ambassador in Berlin at the time, and was being shown around by a party official. She asked him what had happened to the Reichstag, and got an answer which very much put her in her place and said that the National Socialists had no intention of explaining anything. Young lady, she was told, you must learn to be seen and not heard. You mustn't say so much or ask so many questions. This isn't America, and you can't say all the things you think. The Reichstag building was badly damaged in the war, Allied bombing first and then Soviet bombing in the Battle for Berlin when Stalin had ordered his troops to capture it. You may have seen a famous photograph of Red Army soldiers climbing up it and hoisting the hammer and sickle flag on what remained of the dome, the moment said to have signified the final defeat of Berlin and the end of World War II. The apartment building then stood empty, and during the DDR years, when the two halves of Germany were completely separated and Berlin was divided, the Parliament building stood right on the border between East and West Berlin, unused with no access for either side. The West Germans moved their Parliament to the city of Bonn on the Rhine. The East Germans built a new Parliament, the Palace de République, on one of the city's main roads, Unter den Linden. But after the fall of the wall, where else but the Reichstag to hold the official German reunification ceremony on October the 3rd, 1990? And, perhaps even more importantly, on the next day, so the 4th of October, in a hugely symbolic act, the Bundestag of the newly reunified German state met, for the very first time, where else but here in the Reichstag. It took nearly another decade to get everything organised, but the Bonn government eventually transferred to Berlin, the Reichstag became the permanent home of the Bundestag, and the inaugural session was held on September the 7th, 1999. The building had been completely restored in a new design by the British architect Sir Norman Foster, which left much of the outside of the building quite recognisable, except for one big new massive change, the building of a huge glass dome to replace the original cupola. You can admire it from the outside, you can go in on a visit and climb up inside it and get a 360 degree view of the city. And, perhaps more importantly, politically at least, you can see from there down into the debating chamber. The whole thing's about transparency, sending the message that there will be no more dark deeds done from this building. So, let's move on to the idea of visiting. If you want to visit, you do need to book ahead. There's a quite easy to navigate online booking system. I'll put the address in the show notes. When you get there, expect the usual airport-style security, but after that, it's really dead simple. You can go on a guided tour, there are some in English, I think, or you can just take yourself round. So here's a little rundown of things to look out for. Of course, you'll want to see the actual plenary chamber, which is quite impressive. Semicircular, a grey interior, but lots of glass and light, blue seating, and certainly the thing you're most likely to notice as a decoration and an emblem at the front, an enormous silver single-headed eagle, the emblem of the Federal Republic of Germany, and the German flag too, which I noticed with my British eyes because I don't think we have the Union Jack anywhere near the inside of Westminster. I don't know why, 
and certainly in the German parliament it is quite the focal point. Of course you can only go into the plenary chamber on certain days, so if you really want to do that, you need to check in advance. For most visitors, I think it's the chance to climb up inside the dome that's the really attractive option. You can make your way all the way up to the top using a spiral ramp, and it's handy to get hold of one of the Parliament leaflets before you do, because then you can take it up and use it to view the whole of the city, spotting some of the 45 sites which are pictured on the leaflet and helpfully numbered with little explanations. So you'll be able to spot the Parliament quarter, and then working round the Golden Dome of the Neue Synagoge, the new synagogue. Other things you might recognise include the TV Tower, Berlin Cathedral, the Brandenburg Gate and the Holocaust Memorial, and further over towards the west of the city, the Kulturforum, a huge mustard and white curved edifice, home to some of the big art galleries and the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. And then further west again, you'll see the Tiergarten with the Siegersäule, so the enormous victory column built in the centre. Quite a good thing to do actually on your very first day in Berlin to get your bearings. Although much of the outside of the building is pretty much as it was pre-war, the inside has been completely gutted and redesigned, which means that there's quite a lot of artwork to look out for, all of which has been very carefully thought about. Much of it specially commissioned to point to history, to act as a memorial, to send the messages about what the new German Parliament stands for. It's quite hard to know which bits you'll definitely see if you go on one of the guided tours, but I think a little summary of some of the main pieces will be interesting anyway. One of the ones that stood out for me is an installation called the Birkenau Circle, commissioned to ensure that the horrors of the death camps in World War II are remembered particularly here at the centre of German government. The artist began with some photographs of burning corpses from one of the camps, Auschwitz-Birkenau, and put their images onto huge canvases which were then covered with layers of paint which was then scraped off again. I'll let the guidebook explain. Quote, Just as the recollection of this darkest chapter of German history is burned into the collective memory, so the photographs which evoke these horrors remain hauntingly present beneath the layers of paint and beneath the surface of the lives and memories of the generations that came afterwards. Another piece that stood out for me is a triptych called Life Above All Else, in which there are three main panels, and between them they have, I think it's 115 pale monochromed figures, all arranged in rows, and each one has one little splash of colour to represent their role, as the description put it, so maybe a farm implement or an old woman's headscarf. The guidebook explained that this was to represent what they called the sculpture mania in Soviet Russia, which spilled over into East Germany, and it's a work that as a whole portrayed the lack of individuality of the people who lived in those countries, just shown in rows, and labelled for what they could contribute rather than for who they were. Another interesting thing to see is a section of tunnel which carried the heating pipes in the Reichstag before it was burnt, and it's rumoured that this is the way in for the arsonists. So it's placed there as a reminder of the fire, and also as a memorial for Martin van der Lubbe, who was executed for arson, but who, decades later, was exonerated. There are also on display some sections of the original walls of the Parliament, which were found in 1945 
covered with graffiti left by Soviet soldiers. So that too represents a particular moment in the history of the building. There are lots of memorials, for example a huge one to all the members of Parliament who were persecuted between 1933 and 1945. Outside there are crosses marking places where people lost their lives trying to flee across the wall, people who were shot by the East German border guards, and there's a line of cobbles in the roadway just outside the Parliament to mark exactly where the wall stood. Also outside there are plaques which tell stories, one for example a gift from Poland with inscribed onto it in German and Polish the words in memory of the struggle waged by solidarity for freedom and democracy and of the contribution of Poland to the reunification of Germany and for a politically united Europe. And there's another plaque commemorating the opening of the Hungarian border in September 1989 because that allowed thousands of East German residents to flee to the West through Hungary. The inscription on that reads, A sign of friendship between the Hungarian and German people for a united Germany, for an independent Hungary, for a democratic Europe. All these things are remembered in the Parliament, which is, of course, in its main purpose, the functioning heart of German government today in the 21st century. And you can easily understand why it's one of the most visited places in Berlin. Although the building I'm going to talk about in the second half of this podcast is equally famous, equally iconic, equally somewhere which you really should visit, and handily, it's just up the road from the Parliament. And that, of course, is the Brandenburg Gate, or Brandenburger Tor, as the Germans call it. I think often it's the very first place to which visitors go, and actually that's quite a good idea, because not only does it scream Berlin at you and make sure that your first photos will make it clear where you are, it's also a good starting point in both directions for other places you're probably going to want to visit. Parliament and the Holocaust Memorial, a few minutes walk in one direction. It's almost at the entrance to the Tiergarten, so the big central city park, and down in an easterly direction, Wanted in Linden, perhaps the most famous street in the whole of Berlin, the one with lots of buildings on it you're going to want to see, the Cathedral, Museum Island, and some lovely squares and palaces from the old days. So then, the Brandenburg Gate, what actually is it? At the risk of stating the obvious, it is a gate. Originally there were 18 gates into the walled city of Berlin, this is the only one still standing. And the monument you see here today dates from 1788, commissioned by one Frederick William II, and placed at the end of Unterdin Linden, so the road in which his palace stood, so that he could drive from the palace, through the archway, and on into the Tiergarten for a spot of hunting, etc. More importantly, he saw it as, and I do love this phrase, a triumphal arch and a symbol of peace. I don't know if those phrases sound a bit contradictory to your ears, They certainly do to mine. So, if it was going to be in such a prominent place and have such meaning, it had to be a splendid edifice, and it was modelled indeed on the original gateway to the Acropolis in Athens, hence the twelve columns. And there are five different entrances to drive through, the central one being the biggest and most impressive. That one actually was reserved just for royalty. Other people had to drive through the side ones. And a description I read which summed it up read as follows, a simple, beautifully proportioned classical structure. Indeed, 
although it's not just the pillars I've described, it's topped by something called a quadriga, which I looked up and which apparently means a winged goddess driving a chariot pulled by horses. And she is, apparently, in another ironic phrase, the goddess of victory, bearing a symbol of peace. And the reason it's of such significance is really not actually what's there. It's more some of the things, some of the moments of history that have occurred there. So, for example, just a few years after it was put up, in 1806, Napoleon, who had just defeated the Prussians at the Battle of Jena, rode in triumph into their capital city, Berlin, through the Brandenburg Gate. He took a look at the quadriga, took a fancy to it, and immediately ordered that it should be dismantled and taken to Paris. And this was duly done. It was taken apart, packed into crates, and it disappeared from Berlin. The Lonely Planet Guide explained rather nicely what happened next. Quote, After trouncing Prussia in 1806, Napoleon kidnapped the lady and held her hostage in Paris until she was freed by a gallant Prussian general in 1815. So yes, only eight years after they'd taken it away, the Parisians were forced to give the quadriga back. A Prussian general, one Ernst von Fuhl, was dispatched to Paris to see that it happened. Six wagons were organised to transport it, each drawn by, I read, 32 horses. I do question whether that can be right. And brought back to its rightful place in Berlin. Since this was seen as a moment of great triumph for the Prussians, they took the opportunity to take the goddess's staff away and replace it with a Prussian eagle and with some oak leaves which symbolise victory and an iron cross. They held a great victory parade, so the king and his generals rode down onto den Linden and under the newly decorated gate, celebrating their victory. They also took the opportunity to name the square just to the east of the gate the Pariser Platz, so Paris Square, just so nobody could ever forget the Paris connection in all of this. And in a very nice touch, I read that the general who had rescued the quadriga, Ernst von Fuhl, and his family were granted the incredible honour of being allowed to drive from then on through the central archway, an honour which up until that point had been reserved exclusively for the royal family. As you would expect, the Brandenburg Gate features heavily in key moments of 20th century history. In 1933, for example, on January the 30th, the date that Hitler was appointed Chancellor, there was that evening a torchlight procession through Berlin, thousands of stormtroopers in their brown shirts, passing under the Brandenburg Gate to the Presidential Palace, where crowds were waiting to cheer Hitler and other high-ranking members of the Nazi Party. That was the first of many large-scale propaganda events which they held in central Berlin. The gate survived World War II but was badly damaged, bullet holes, explosion damage, etc. Only one of the horse's heads survived. It was taken down and put in a museum, in the Märkisches Museum, in fact, and in the 1950s a replacement was made. The original plaster moulds were found, the quadriga was restored to its former glory, and something I found interesting to read was that this project was worked on by both the East and West German authorities, one of the last things they did together before the two Germanys went their separate ways. There was, in the early days, a Soviet flag placed on top of the Brandenburg Gate because it stood in the Soviet sector, but a bit later in the decade it was replaced with the East German flag, which flew there until the wall fell and the two Germanys were reunited. 
Following the erection of the Berlin Wall in 1961, the Brandenburg Gate remained just inside the eastern sector, so near to the wall that access on both sides was cut off. And so it became a symbol of divided Germany. During the 1980s, what the Germans called the winds of change began to blow, and there was a very significant event which took place right here at the Brandenburg Gate. And that was the day in June 1987 when Ronald Reagan came to town and made a speech with the gate as a backdrop. It's thought about 20,000 Berliners were there to hear him, but more importantly, it had worldwide coverage on television and radio. There were signs at this point that the Cold War was thawing a bit. President Reagan knew that he had quite a good relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet president, and he began to wonder whether he should push things a little. I've read that his speechwriters worked on this for a year, umming and eyeing about how far they could go. But on the day, President Reagan decided to go for it. And the line that everyone remembers from this speech is when he said, Mr Gorbachev, tear down this wall. In fact, in that same month, June 1987, there was another significant event, a David Bowie concert. I think that was at the Reichstag. So again, right up against the wall, and he knew that there were East Germans listening to the music from the other side of the wall. He sang his song Heroes, which he'd written when he actually lived in Berlin in the 1970s, the theme of it being two lovers separated by a wall and trying to work out how to meet. And introducing the song, he said, We send our wishes to all our friends who are on the other side of the wall. This gesture possibly got slightly less publicity than Mr Reagan's speech. So, did it really play a role in the fall of the wall? Well, the German foreign ministry seemed to think so, because when David Bowie died, they tweeted a link to his song with the message, Goodbye, David Bowie. You are now among the heroes. Thank you for helping bring down the wall. And so, of course, of course, because the Brandenburg Gate had been such a symbol of the division of Germany, it also became a symbol of its reunification. Reopening it was one of the very first things the German government did as early as December 1989, so just a month or two after the fall of the wall. A ceremony was held there, 10,000 people came to watch, and the West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl walked through the Brandenburg Gate, something that had been impossible for nearly 30 years, to meet his East German counterpart on the other side. The opportunity was taken to restore the Quadriga, something which, as so often in German history, was fraught with decision-making problems. I'll let Barney Weitzbunner, author of Berlin, the Story of a City, take up the story. One particular advantage of the collapse of the GDR was that the Quadriga goddess on the Brandenburg Gate could be returned to her original state. This poor deity and symbol of Berlin, who had been cast, stolen, hauled back, copied, bombed and had her staff chopped up, was now returned to how she had been in 1815, when Schinkel, that's the architect, gave her an iron cross and a Prussian eagle. There was an inevitable debate as to whether she should be seen to carry these symbols of Prussian militarism, until it was pointed out that the iron cross was designed for those who had fought the French tyranny in the Napoleonic Wars, and that it was Ulbricht, that was the East German Chancellor, who had removed both it and the eagle. She quickly had them both returned and was rededicated on the 6th of August 1991. Another significant moment came in 1994 when the Allied troops, so the French, the British, the Americans, 
finally, finally left Berlin, a ceremony was called for, and they paraded, where else, through the Brandenburg Gate. Chancellor Kohl made a speech, thanking all the troops, in which perhaps the most memorable sentence was this one. Today, as you leave Berlin, we can definitely say, freedom has won. Today, it's really a venue for tourists, a place to date your photos, and for Berliners themselves, a place for concerts or other big events. Sometimes a big screen goes up, for example, for major sporting events. I suppose the history will eventually fade a little bit, and perhaps people will gradually forget why it's so significant. But for someone like me, I think it will always be unforgettable. I went to Berlin when the city was divided, and I remember the eastern half of the city as being cold and grey and unwelcoming and pretty scary, really. And so the marvel of today, when I can wander through the Brandenburg Gate, perhaps eating an ice cream and taking photos, will never leave me. Here, to finish then, is Barney Whitespunner again, summing up the reasons why the Brandenburg Gate is so significant. Quote, Partly because of where it was, in one of the most prominent spots in the city, and on the main east-west route, partly because of its simple beauty, partly because it symbolised the idea of Berlin as the Athens on the Spree, and partly because it has been so badly vandalised, the Brandenburg Gate has come to represent both the spirit of Berlin and the city's freedom. Yes, quite, and as I mentioned, it's also central enough to be a really good starting point for a first morning in the city. So that more or less wraps things up for today then. I hope you enjoyed the story of Berlin's two most iconic monuments. I hope that you'll feel perhaps a little better informed if you go to visit either of them. And I hope very much too that you'll join me for the next episode in a fortnight's time, which is going to be on the main street of old Berlin, the one with the biggest collection of monuments and places you want to visit along it, namely the lovely Unter den Linden. We'll have a wander from end to end, pause at some of the main buildings, hear some of the stories connected with them, and generally get to know one of Berlin's very best-known streets. And so until then, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening, vielen Dank fürs Zuhören, and to say goodbye until next time. Auf Wiederhören und bis zum nächsten Mal. <laughs>